This is MPN. From Los Angeles, it's the McShank Podcast on the McCarran Podcast Network. Here's Ryan and Clayton. podcast 2016 edition oh my gosh recording in 2017 very exciting what Clayton, is this, ryan number nine you're number, number nine number nine number nine i think so yeah i think yeah the uh the 07 hey, take it down yoko okay <laughs> no 08 so it's the first oh eight right so this yeah I think it's 9, be, 10, 11, 12, Let's do a little 15, finger counting 14, right here. 15, 16. Yeah, it's our eighth one, but it's it's in the year. ninth year. In yeah, ninth or year. something like that. That's an impressive streak. Clayton, I got to tell you, the world is ending, so I'm so happy that you're here. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really happy that I'm, I'm here for our last inaugural yes. <laughs> edition of the McShank podcast. The, the doomsday clock is really close to 12 now. It's about a... I think then they just uh, move the, the needle to 13. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to break off, I think, sometime soon. But we're here, we're hopefully to give you a little bit of a uh, respite from all of the crazy bullshit that's uh, spewing from our quote-unquote president's mouth. Um, <laughs> I just, actually, instead of the quote-unquote, it's better if it's just lowercase p. I told a, um, a teacher friend of mine, I said, if anybody... He doesn't get the dignity of an uppercase no, p. No, he doesn't. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve the uppercase p for president. So I said, if you should tell all your students to just, if you're talking about Trump as president, just a lowercase p. Right, right. Well, hopefully this will be some kind of a reprieve from all the daily exploits of President Dick Cheese. Mm-hmm. Oh. Speaking On that of, note. Speaking of Dick Cheese. Speaking of Dick Cheese. <laughs> what about the favorite films of the year? Oh, boy. What? We're nothing if not great at these transitions, folks. Clearly um, fans of transitional material. So, 2016 as a whole, why don't you give me your thoughts as in terms of, did you see a theme? Did you see a through line? Did you see something that was consistent throughout um, the different months of the year? Uh, let's see. Well, from a glance, it was definitely a quantity year. I think I ended up seeing around 64-ish uh, new movies that came out this year, which is a little above average for my yearly count, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I think on a whole, I, I, I think it was a pretty strong year. There were probably more movies, maybe curiously, that I found just flat out enjoyable and warm and uplifting than in previous years. That mm-hmm. will definitely make its way onto my list because normally my list is hopelessly dark. Yeah, without mm-hmm. much, uh, without much room for light to get in. <laughs> uh, and uh, this year is going to be a little more fun, I think, some of the picks. Yeah, I, I actually tend to agree. And I don't know if maybe we're looking at it through the lens of what has happened, you know, with the election and, and where this country is right now. Maybe we have a, a similar number of things, but maybe we can look back on these enjoyable movies and go, hey, you know, that was a pretty good time. That was two hours outside of this, this like, dark cloud no, totally. that permeates your entire life. So those one th- those types of films are going to definitely move up to that and because it's so funny i completely agree with you there are a couple other films on here and i think just a list from a list standpoint there's really only a couple on here that could just be like straight up downers sure you know but generally as a whole i'd say that there's a more positive outlook there's a there's a there's a more just a general uplifting outlook throughout through the movies on my list. Right. I think yeah, I think my list is pretty split 50-50 in terms of the more serious dramatic kind of movies that typically move us and 
sharing time with the more just enjoyable, warm experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think my list is fairly balanced. And as I look at it and all the movies I saw this year, I was pretty happy with this year. It was certainly a disappointment from a studio tentpole oh, God. perspective. Really? I, think the, I think the only thing I can say that came out of a big studio that I kind of enjoyed was Star Trek Beyond. Because it was just it was just fun, zippy. It did what it needed to do. It wasn't overly long, and it threw some cool musical choices in there at occasional moments, and was just kind of a, a good little diversion. And other than that, it was just kind of a, a flaming train wreck from big yeah. studios this year. Well, you know what? Maybe that's a good thing because we've gotten to a point in film where there is the they're doing the $200 million movie or the $200,000 movie, and there's nothing in between yeah. that can really satisfy those little projects. And th there's a few of them on here that were sort of these micro-budget that kind of went big, but there isn't anything. And I, I always go back to, I don't understand why, I always go back to a movie like Gross Point Blank. <laughs> For some reason, that movie just feels like a movie that is just not made anymore. It's just right in the middle. Sure, yeah. It's a solid script. It's acted well. Those mid-budget movies are uh, are vanishing yeah. at a rapid rate. And it's a shame. And so it's a possibility that instead of taking large baths on these giant tentpole movies, that maybe they just add up the the wins with the little ones in the right, middle right. you know you can make a 60 million dollar movie and have it gross 180 million dollars worldwide and it's yeah. like oh great okay yeah but i guess they're just taking these big swings and trying to get to that billion dollar figure yeah and it just it th this year it just didn't quite work as well right right i mean i'm looking at my list and i have mostly small movies that you'll be hearing today uh it's i mean it, if it's not independent, it's on the really low-budget studio end of things. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, just at a, a flat-out guess, looking at my list, I think the most expensive movie might be something like $60 million. Wow, okay. Or something. Hmm. So it's going to be small, especially on the, the warm uplifting side. It's going to be movies with mini-school budgets that just tell a story and tell it well and make you feel good while you're watching it. And I'm thankful that that's been the trend this year because my uh, yeah my my typical list is pretty miserable. Yeah. So uh, so hopefully I'll uh, be sprinkling some daylight into the list this year. Well, and I I don't know. I think we should just kind of get into it. Sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, I guess a drum roll. I'm gonna go first. So you gave yourself a drum roll. I did. Isn't, Damn there, it. Some, isn't there some cosmic law against that? I, it, it's probably a bad luck charm, so it's probably... <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. what else is new? Let's just throw it on I, the top of everything I else. I don't know if that speaks well for the quality of your list here, buddy. <laughs> My number 10 film of 2016 is one that I talked about on our um, summer wrap-up fall preview. Yeah, some of um, mine will be some of these are appearance gonna be going to be a couple of, of same ones, but not too many. Um, it's Don't Think Twice. Uh, uh, Mike yes. Birbiglia comedy sort of a, a, a very strange the, the one line i can say about it is what i went back to is a coming of age tale in your 30s like it's it's about older people trying to find themselves an intriguing look at improv performers in new york city right. trying to hold on to their last vestiges of hope it's to where, make it's, it it's where passion meets practicality yeah honestly and you have to there, there's always a crossroads for all of us when we have to go one way or the other hopefully you're hoping those two roads will meet uh, but that's a very, very, it's a long shot, you know? And so 
it's you know looming over all these characters is that idea of of where of those crossing roads and it's this the saturday night live avatar in the movie is a show called weekend live it's weekend live yeah it's sort of, it sounds weird coming off the coming on, on, onto the ear but um, but when one of them actually, one of the improv troupe actually makes it onto the show. Keegan-Michael Key. Yeah, that's when the interpersonal relationships start to kind of get strained a little bit. It's almost like they feel like we're all in this shitty apartment life and struggling life together. And so when one of them goes and finds success, it's like, oh, well, no, what are you trying What are you trying to do? So there's that duality as well, because Mike Birbiglia's character he seems sort of content with living. He's in his late thirties, early forties. He seems content with his situation, which is scraping by and doing comedy just for the sake of it. And not wanting to, I mean, he, I think he would like to hit it big the same way that we all would like to, but there's also an uncomfortableness and a, and a a contentment that would be challenged if he did make it big. Mm -hmm. And there's a, and there, there, there's a character in there, Gillian Jacobs, who plays Keegan, Michael Key's girlfriend, right? who I think uh, I personally can relate to because she had this opportunity to also uh, try out for the show, but is having trouble getting to the point where, okay, I need to get on there and I'm nervous to take that next step. And so I can relate to that in my own life is that in that there are things in my life where you can say, oh, I can either take this big leap potentially, but I could also fail. And so my fear of failure my knowingly that i have that it really made it stand out to me that oh this is could be something that could happen to me you know this great opportunity potentially but you just don't want to take it right so um i really connected with that character and it really resonated with me so overall very funny movie very very um poignant uh, and yeah, don't think twice. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I brought it up in our fall, in our, our summer recap fall anticipation show that we did before this. And my cousin Amy is actually in a comedy improv troupe at uh, Second City in Chicago. And I saw this movie with her and actually asked her, is that, how did you relate to this movie? And she said that the whole idea of the relationships between the, the troupe getting strained because somebody finds success was unfamiliar to her and she thinks maybe it's because she was in her early 20s when this was happening and maybe the the future is way off in the distance for all of her friends and everyone has a general support for anybody that would get that kind of opportunity but she said who knows add 10 years to that equation yeah with this and the beat down of the right. rejection or yeah and, and, yeah. Your, and your passion as occupation is dwindling by the year the chances of it mm-hmm. There may be some more hostility and animosity that would surface mm. in a troupe like that. So, uh, yeah, interesting movie. I think it's most alive in its improv scenes, which just really demonstrate the off-the-cuff ingenuity of those comedians and kind of contrasts it in the not-improv scenes where you get kind of the sad clown thing that mm-hmm. you mentioned in our yeah. earlier show. Good pick. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, My number 10 is actually a cheat. Uh, you may, oh, already you, with you this may, shit. <laughs> the only this may be the first time I've done this, but you may call it a Baroga esque cheat. Oh no, Mike, wherever you are, rest love, in peace. Rest in peace. <laughs> I love you, buddy. Uh, I have a tie. Oh, at number ten. Wow. I could just could not find the rationale to leave one of these two films off of the list. Okay. So I will devote half as much time to each one as I would <laughs> normally. Normally, a single okay. film. All right. 
the first one of these films is Green Room. Uh, this is Jeremy Sonier's follow-up to Blue Ruin, which we got a couple years ago, and stars the the unfortunately late great Anton Yelchin as a a punk rocker in a group called the Ain't Rights, who takes a the group takes a a desperate gig. They're kind of they kind of live out of a van. They siphon gas off of cars that they <laughs> run into that are unoccupied just to make it to the next show. And they take a, a gig. I think it's out in the just the secluded, foresty area of Oregon or something. But it's this really off the beaten path uh, punk rock club, and they find themselves witnessing a murder at the hands of a neo-Nazi skinhead and get trapped in the titular green room and basically try and find a way to wiggle their way out of the situation. And what ca- what was so good about Blue Ruin was its realness like you it approached in that particular case a revenge thriller as if it would actually happen centering on somebody who has no idea what they're doing and no idea how to pull off what they want to pull off and it's the result is messy and it shows that same thing here everything that happens feels totally totally logical and reason as if you would actually be experiencing it yourself and it features a great term by patrick stewart as the leader of the skinhead group and uh to exemplify that real on-the-fly quality, there's a, a great moment where the band is battling some uh, skinheads, and Sonia cuts back and forth between the two, and you see both sides are super worried and cautious and unsure, as if they've never actually been in this kind of life-or-death struggle before. Whereas in a, a lesser typical movie, you know, you'd have the bad guys who are just spraying bullets and super confident. Mm-hmm. And no emotion registering on yeah. their face, but these are real people this movie deals with, which makes it so refreshing. Uh, so Green Room, a late love letter to Anton Yelchin and a super tight claustrophobic thriller that everybody should seek out. And Nazis. That's another thing that's coming up in 2016, too. Why? Why Nazis? So it's a, yeah. it's prophetic that you maybe put that a, on Maybe there. a prescient film I, in, in the long run. You're right. Uh, and uh, Ten Part B... <laughs> Uh, is I can't believe you did that. A little, f- I know. I, I, you can, you can, uh, you can, you can wrap, wrap me on the on the wrist later on if you like. My ten part B is the witch, the from, Vivich, the Vivich oh. from director Robert Eggers. His sixteen hundred set Puritan horror odyssey, mostly starring, mostly featuring a, a single family whose commitment to religious purity has essentially ostracize themselves from their larger group and like the title suggests there are supernatural elements to this movie but it's mostly grounded in family dynamics and the natural horror that can result from that which as it turns out is probably a hundred times more riveting than actual supernatural horror and i'd agree with that the movie is so authentic in terms of the dialogue i even with subtitles i was having trouble picking out certain things that are being said because the dialogue is exhaustively researched by Eggers, taking into account actual things said from diaries of the time. And the authenticity really puts you in the moment. The costume design is great. And just the atmosphere is so suffocating and and just horrendous and great. <laughs> uh, it features probably the most memorable animal character of any film yeah. this year. We'll call him Black Phillip. And the ending does kind of veer toward actual supernatural which i was fine with some people didn't and i don't blame them for that but i thought it was a it was a a perfectly justified move um that resulted from the 
really small scale, really fascinating family drama that preceded it. So, um, yeah, I'll cut it off there. The Witch. Okay. Ten Part B. I saw that movie. Mm-hmm. It was alright. It's alright. Yeah, it's alright. It's a horror movie. You know, I mean, that's uh, that's kind of where it begins and ends with well, me. Well, let's cut that... it off there. I don't okay. believe that you saw it. Okay. okay. I saw it. I saw it. Sure. I sure. saw it. Sure you did. Number nine. Moonlight. Moonlight. In the moonlight. Yes. Barry Jenkins directing uh, a fantastic story of manhood, uh, as well as a really aching story of love. Um, it takes place, it follows the same character in three facets of his life, boyhood, high school teen, and adulthood. It takes place mainly in the Liberty City area of Miami, where the director and the writer both grew up, so they had firsthand knowledge of the things that kind of go on in uh, in that particular part of the the world, the country. Um, the main character's name is Chiron, and he struggles with a crack addicted mother throughout, and the struggles of being a small kid in the a tough neighborhood. Right. Um, and uh, interestingly, Mahershala Ali gives a really inspired performance as a drug dealer who sort of takes a liking to Chiron. We don't really know why. Really, I think it's just his character. It's sort of a dichotomy between what he does for a living, which is sell drugs and be a main, you know, one of the high up drug dealers. I like in how this slowly area. that's revealed too. Yeah, it's not he's talking to people, onset. he's chatting, and then and then you, yeah, and then it really comes to 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 a head uh, later on in the opening section. Um, so it's the dichotomy between the bad things that he does and also how good of a person he is, mm-hmm. trying to take this boy in and teach him the things that his mother can't or won't um including letting him stay at his house and eat food and be a part of a nuclear family as as best there is um but the and his role model actually plays out comes back later um in the film and the three sections are so different in what happens but there's a consistency with the way it's shot and the way... Yeah, um, the, there's a narrative through line. There it definitely even is. Even though it's working with different pieces. And it, it doesn't ever make it feel like it's a different movie. You still, there is that through line that gives it that consistency that it is one story with one person just in different times, but so many different things happen as That's you, a big as you achievement from Barry Jenkins because that would have derailed the project if he couldn't find some characterization from actors that carried you from uh the life of this uh this kid he's actually called little in the first mm-hmm. uh section of the film yeah, yeah and then chiron in the middle section but the actors of this film were so crucial at maintaining that consistency of character yeah and naomi harris is the one through line really she's she's the one character who stays the same you know mm-hmm. the one the one actor who doesn't change out because everybody gets older um but his relationship with his mother is a very important one and almost sort of stunts his growth really emotionally physically and in the first two sections and then he tries to break away from it and you get to see what he's become in the third section i don't want to give away too much of the plot because i think that it would do it an injustice if you haven't seen it but yeah wonderfully haunting final shot right um and i think it's going to be a real heavyweight come oscar time i think it could probably at least take down a couple of the, the the major awards, I think. Right. I have this movie higher up on my list as well, so I'll just get it out of the way right now. Uh, yeah, I've been saying for a while that the products of black cinema, quote-unquote, as offered by Hollywood have been really disappointingly narrow in scope. I'm thinking of movies like The Help and The Blind Side, which mm-hmm. 
they're they're things that always put black identity in a racial context and really fail to examine what it means to be black in the 21st century and moonlight just could not feel more the antithesis to that and more authentic it's not only about what it means to be black but also it's about black sexual identity too yeah. and again i'll leave the mechanics of the plot to people who haven't seen it yet but uh i was really really impressed with the way this kind of triptych story is told and how the the actors are yeah are just so consistent we get little then chiron and then he's just called black i think in the mm-hmm. last uh, oh, i think it's flipped i think he's black in the middle is it not i think black's at the end um okay. uh, the character played by trevante rhodes okay. the, uh, with the grill and uh, right 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 <laughs> and all that um and yeah the way that jenkins pulled this off is astonishing they they don't always look the part, but the performances seem to have like a psychic connection almost Yeah, that really brings you right back into that space. And the last chapter with Trevante Rhodes, I think is one of the most crushing and incisive dramatic scenes of anything I saw this year with the possible, possible exception of my number one film. But uh, yeah, I love Mahershala Ali mm-hmm. in this. I was really thrilled for his, uh, his Oscar nomination. Yeah, me too. As uh, as Juan. Um, I was happy that he was not that I thought he was probably going to win the Golden Globe, but I was happy that Aaron Taylor Johnson won for Nocturnal Animals. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, I think he might be the front runner. I think for uh, come Oscar time because his because his performance is so it's so restrained and it's so he never loses his temper. He never gets above almost a no. whisper really. And no, he, no. and he keeps it, he keeps the, the, the performance very even keel. All the effectiveness is in the expressions and mm-hmm. the carefully chosen words in the mannerisms. It all comes through without going big. Like, yeah. like you're saying. Yeah. And his, uh, his role in the first chapter, I mean, he mostly disappears from the rest of the movie. I just did after the first chapter. Yeah, after maybe. the first scene. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, after the first section. And you really miss him because he's, yeah. he's a really big presence. But uh, And you can tell how the character does, too. The main character does. Yeah, well. yeah. And he, he is the drug dealer who acts as kind of moral guidance for Little in lieu of his uh, Little's mother, who turns out to be drug-addled. Mm-hmm. And who, ironically, also... <laughs> is a customer of Juan's oh, yeah. and uh, that kind of sets the table for, I think is the most powerful line of the whole year inside Juan's house at the, at the table. I don't know if you remember it. Um, I don't remember exactly how it goes, so I won't even try, but it's an ex- exquisite and gut wrenching line. Uh, there's the, the so-called baptism scene mm-hmm. in the water. Yes. Yeah. Where Juan is like just cradling him and teaching him how to swim, but you know, figuratively it's his baptism into being a man almost. Yeah. And, uh, Apparently the kid yeah. did not know actually know how to swim either. Oh, so I didn't know there that. was a, there was an element of he was actually taking him on as his father figure of actually mm. teaching him how to swim in the film and in real life too. Right, so right. Adds another layer to Mahershala. Nice. Yeah. I think the last thing I'll say is the the script is is an accomplishment from Jenkins. I think he's the first black writer director in Oscar history to get nominated for both. I think. Uh, he didn't write it by himself. There was I mean there he, was definitely he, he somebody was, else. Yeah. He on was. There, uh, yeah. He also adapted a. Um, another story to tell this, but I don't think there's ever been a black writer director to get nominated for both before. Uh, but yeah, the script is good, but I think this thing is more of a visual achievement than anything. Um, there's a, this layered richness to the cinematography that is completely absorbing. I think specifically with actually how black skin is portrayed. Uh, I can't really recall something that's so ex- like exploratory and attentive to the, you know the hues and texture of black skin mm-hmm. than moonlight just the, the way it's shot is just really rich and evocative well um, the story itself is based mm-hmm. on 
has an element of that too. Yeah, black look, boys look uh look look blue in the moonlight. Look blue in the moonlight yeah, is yeah. what it's based on. Yeah, yeah, highly recommended. Moonlight. All right, what's your number nine? My number nine is a nine. a small film. <laughs> Easy, Yoko. My number nine is a a small film that went criminally underseen, but was pretty well regarded critically. It's called Eye in the Sky. Oh yeah, this is I from. Know it. I haven't uh, seen it, but I know it's it. from yeah. director Gavin Hood, and it's a a taut claustrophobic thriller that shows the the full timeline from inception to execution of a single drone mission of a suspected terrorist target. Uh, it's it's essentially a morality play that dissects like the quandaries and ambiguities that go into processing these extreme variables on the fly in a real situation uh, that have that are potentially explosive, you know, both literally and figuratively. The absurdities that go into how these decisions are agreed upon through the chain of command, uh, how they are just the decision to strike or not strike are constantly and sometimes hopefully deferred up to supervisors who can't, you can't always get on the phone and who mm-hmm. won't make decisions themselves. Uh, how the statistical probabilities that have to couch and caveat every moment are like a lifeboat that anyone who hopes to save his own ass has to cling on right. to. Yeah. Uh, it's just all these things like, you know, I, there's a 75% probability and I'm not going to go 1% higher because that means my ass is on the line. Never tell me it, the odds. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, it stars Aaron Paul as one of the drone operators yeah. and Helen Murren as uh, someone in the military high command and Alan Rickman as more of a kind of bureaucratic end of things. Again, Another person who died, by the, the way. The late, great Alan Rickman. Yeah. Uh, this is just a small, exceptionally well-acted and just palm-sweating thriller that didn't get much attention but it should be sought out by all fans of just armrest gripping cinema <laughs> so check out eye in the sky it's not something that's going to be promoted come oscar time but it'll give you a, a riveting hundred hundred minutes or so okay well for my number eight clayton there as you know there are films that grow on you as you're watching them as they unfold sure there are films that need more thought and reflection before you can really get a sense of what did I think of this and how does this play with me before you can really make a decision. Then there's Deadpool. <laughs> Deadpool. Which grabs you by the lips and pulls you into the world and pulls you into the movie as soon as the opening credits begin. Yes. Um, it's a film that pulls no punches and was as beautifully violent and as delightfully vulgar as you hoped it would be and that you thought it would be. Um, there's not really a lot of analysis you can really do <laughs> with a film like Deadpool. Um, but I remember when they surprised the Hall H crowd at Comic-Con, we were, we were there with footage from the movie. We knew we had an idea they might be there, but they actually came and had like an extended preview. And it was so popular that the crowd literally chanted for it to be played again and Chris Hardwick, who was who was moderating the panel, said, well, I'm the one with the microphone, so I have to tell him to play it again. So play it again. <laughs> they weren't supposed to, but but it really just, I mean, it absolutely... Give got, the people what they want, Hardwick. It, it absolutely stole the show and was the, the biggest memory that I at least have from there. And the film did not disappoint in any way, shape, or form. Um, but it's self-deprecating. I mean, as self-deprecating as it comes, really, but with a surprising heart of gold at the center. It's something that unexpected, and I think that's what you need. You can't have one without the other. You need to to, to have yeah. to humanize 
as best you can these these superheroes right. who basically have no basis in reality but that is our connection to them is that if you can give them human issues and make them have human emotions you go okay that's where i can connect i don't know what it's like to be tortured inside a, a you know a shady dark room trying to you know make me whatever a super soldier but i can relate to you know losing a girlfriend or right. doing this you know so that's that's your way in um but it shows that if it's done well, you can have a gritty R-rated superhero. Yeah, such a risk. It really was that Fox. That Fox put into motion here. Yeah, yeah, but it's such a passion project and such a labor of love for Ryan Reynolds to, after eleven years, to finally get his version of the character on screen. Yeah, and to have people respond to it so enthusiastically. Yeah, it's all him. I mean, and it's all his. It's his baby, really. Him and Tim Miller, um, who won't be directing the second one, but um, I mean, it's just. Yeah, I mean, it was my favorite superhero movie of the year and of the past how, few years too. It just showed you how it showed you how malleable the film industry is. An R-rated superhero movie was unthinkable before Deadpool, mm-hmm. and wait, suddenly it's reaping box office gold and it's trying a lot of crazy things. And suddenly we have Logan coming out this yeah. year. That's an R-rated, brutal Wolverine take supposedly, mm-hmm. and. God, if only movies like like Suicide Squad had dared to be that just risky. take a risk, dared, yeah, dared to be that risky and be rated R and. Yeah, it, this movie really does grab you from the opening credits, where I think it said it's directed by some tool. Yeah, right? isn't that? Isn't and that then it's uh, the Ryan Reynolds is listed as God's perfect idiot. <laughs> oh, and the self-referential humor that not only goes to the fictional world it's inhabiting, but the actual world. Yeah, you know where uh, there's a there's a Green Lantern reference at some point mm-hmm. with the CG suit. Yeah, don't make this and... the the super suit green or animated. <laughs> right. But and when, it, but I think my favorite part, I think my favorite the fourth wall. Well, it's that, but it's also there's the the scene specifically where he shows up to the X Men mansion because he's been working oh, yeah. with ne- uh, Negasonic uh, Teenage Warhead yeah. and Colossus, right? And he makes a reference. He goes to the he goes the to man- Xavier's school of, for the gifted, gifted yeah. and yeah. goes, man. I only ever see the two of you around here. It's almost like we couldn't get a budget for more of them, <laughs> and it's like that's per. I mean, that's fantastic because yeah, it, yeah. it, it's winking and it's. Yeah, so yeah. on 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 the on on the the tip of oh well now it's positive positivity on my list Deadpool I couldn't leave it off. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one too, and it was by far the best superhero experience this year. And yeah, uh, the, the yeah, that risky self referential humor paid I think enormous dividends just for the audience who was seeing it as well as for Fox, who it's one of those cases where a studio takes a legitimate gamble and is rewarded handsomely for it. So hopefully we see more inspired work like Deadpool in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number eight is, well, it comes from director Juan Antonio Bayona, or Jab, as mm. I call him. It is a Monster, Monster Calls. Calls. Oh, I miss this one, too. This was Monst- one of the ones that I almost, yeah, but. A Monster Calls from Liam Neeson. Bayona's <laughs> <No. laughs> uh, previous film was The Impossible. That was my number seven of 2012. And the one right before that was, of course, The Orphanage, which was a, Masterclass and subtle layered horror. Um, there were plenty of films this year on offer that tackled the subject of grief, uh, but none of them really handled them better and more interestingly and evocatively for me than this story of Connor, who's played by a newcomer named Lewis McDougall, and the emotional arc he undergoes as his um, mother continues to ail more and more. 
the mother played by Felicity Jones. If you're going to see one Felicity Jones movie Hell yeah. this year, make it this one. Make it this one. <laughs> we may get into more of a discussion about that later <laughs> in our disappointing section. <laughs> but for now, we'll leave it at there. Uh, much like The Orphanage, there's an element of the fantastical here. Uh, at every night, precisely at 12.07 a.m., Connor is visited by a gigantic tree monster voiced by... Liam Neeson and the monster takes Connor on this journey in the form of storytelling uh, shown to us, the audience as these animated moral parables. And it's really riveting stylistic, rich animation and easily one of the biggest highlights in the movie. But we learn that these little sections will be symbolic of his situation in the present and also in future ways that we don't even fully understand yet. Uh, there, there's many moments of like just kind of a, a depiction of shattering like destructive almost like feral youth in this connor character it kind of reminded me of uh where the wild things are in that way which now that i think of it would be like a, a great double feature uh and all of this all these characteristics of connor seem just wholly congruent with the grieving process he's he's undergoing and all road all the roads of the screenplay really lead to this really intense exhaustive emotionally cathartic uh, moment that has some really, I think, wise things to say about just the act of letting go in general. And the movie is just a through and through gut wrencher and will bring you through the ringer, but compelling, a compelling stop at the movies nonetheless. Did uh, you, did you see it in the theater or did you see it? I saw a screener. You saw a screener for it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, that was one that I felt like I needed to see it in a theater. I got a recommendation from my friend who saw it in the theater and was blown away. Okay. So I, I missed that, unfortunately, yeah. but I heard the same thing. That was one thing. Yeah, one thing I was kind of missing with that is I don't know if it ever really eh, – whatever. But, yeah, I did really want to catch that one. So mm-hmm. I'll have to, to, to definitely make a in retrospect, more of a point catch up with it, to yeah. do that for sure. Um, What's your number uh, seven. seven, man? It's number seven. I don't know why I didn't listen to myself, um, but it's Sing Street. So, but let me stop you there and just why? tell you that Sing Street is my number seven film. Oh, really? So, All right. Well, let's 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 do it then. So let's have a uh, let's have a, an let's open have, and honest. Let's discussion. have a little bash, my friend. <laughs> yes. So, John Carney made Once and Begin Again. Once is fantastic. Begin Again is good. A little, I, little more middle of the road, but still yeah, good. It's his. It's a more mainstream version of what Once could have been. You know. So sure, yeah. I still liked it. You still mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. I knew he made Sing Street. I knew it. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't see it until it was on Netflix. So I had friends specifically who were saying this movie is good. Don't go see horrible films. Go see this movie yes. instead. And I went, eh, you know, okay, sure. And, and everything. I didn't see much for it. I didn't know. But it should have just, I should have just known knowing that. Um, so we watched it on, on Netflix. It's a wonderful journey through the different phases of 80s music. Sure. I mean, in terms of style and literal style, like clothing, and also in terms of musical style as well. Um, it stars unknown child actors who create a band and make music videos. Th- I mean, that's kind of it, really. There's... Well, I love the band. The inception of the band is really so the main character can impress a girl. Can get a girl. Right, which is what every single song is about anyway. Yeah, so he, it makes it perfect that this is the visual representation yeah, of the, it. This posh Irish boy who, because of struggles with his family, has to go to a more kind of mainstream public school with more ruffians yeah. wandering about and really sees this beautiful girl and goes up to her and says, basically, 
no, I'm in a band. Do you want to be in my band? And and she's like, yeah, you know, I've done some modeling and stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I could yeah. do it. And and then she puts him on the spot, sing something for me. Yeah. And, and he does, and it's decent, but pretty raw, good, but raw. Yeah. And then he goes back to his his friend on the other side of the street, who's going to end up being their manager and mm-hmm. director, so to speak, and goes. We gotta make a band. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, you're putting just, the cart before the horse on that one there. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's fucking great. <laughs> it's basically yeah. I mean, they're dealing with the pressures of being in Catholic school and all the crushing guilt that comes with that. Dealing with bullies, young love. I mean, it's crowd pleasing songs all around. I mean, it's a wonderfully sweet story without being too saccharine. Sure, really, I agree. Um, but the music is really the star here. Spot on, fantastic. Just, written, written by Carney and another, yeah, some more team of writers. Yeah. And he and they perfectly capture the different styles that they. I mean, really, you get almost the entire 1980s. Yeah. Just you get new wave, you get the Smiths right. style, you get the Cure, you get you know all these sorts of styles in this in this one movie. Yeah. And it's great to see the demarcation in the film of when they go, Oh no, we gotta be we gotta be hollow notes now. Okay, and now we gotta you know, we gotta be new wave and we gotta be, you know, synthesizers and stuff because their style changes throughout every single movie. So yeah. at one point when they shift to another style, they're now they're dressed up like the Smiths and now they're dressed up like now he has Devo. Blonde, now he has blonde highlights and Yeah, hair. yeah. So Because he needs a look. It's it's infectiously optimistic really too. it is yeah. and th- that is it just made it i mean you have a smile on your face from start to finish really yeah there's usually one masterful scene in each carney film and with once it was the impromptu falling slowly scene at the mm-hmm. piano and this one i think it doesn't have the emotional pull of that great song but it's 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 a close second in my opinion it involves the song up Mm-hmm. Which is a soaring ode to like young love, love. and yeah. in the scene, uh, another protagonist named Connor, played by uh, I think his name's Ferdy uh, Walsh Pilo, something like that, and the other band member is Mark McKenna, who plays Eamon, who's obviously the most talented musician in the band. They begin hashing out this song in Eamon's living room by themselves, and all they really have are some lyrics and some early ideas at piano melodies, and Carney's camera slowly starts to spin around the living room in 360 degrees as they start practicing this song. And as the camera spins around, the the time of day changes, and suddenly the rest of the band is now in the living room as well with all their instruments just playing the song in its full glory. And the camera keeps going around in this circuitous motion and gets back to Connor and Eamon, who are now in different clothes Mm -hmm. and really just jamming the song out. And it's kind of a really effective single shot time lapse of the of a song from like inception to execution. Yeah. And it's done really well and there's just kind of this magical feeling about it just how it captures the stuff of art, of artistic creation, you know. Well, what's also funny is the inception of those songs. Mm-hmm. I say 3 quarters of the time it's just them going up to one another and going, hey, I want to write a song. All right, come on in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Let's just do it. it you know, Something you happens in your life. You want to write about it. You just show up. And go. It, it, it's so youthfully, blissfully yeah. wonderful. It's exactly um, how Lennon and McCartney used to do it before they, yeah. uh, before they had a band. You want to write a song? Okay, yeah. sure. Sure, yeah. Great. You got any chords? I'm also a sucker for piano in rock music, too. So too, I think yeah. that that also, that, that when, they, when they hit the piano, because it's just guitar and vocals in that song, and then they hit the piano, and it's like, oh, gosh, you know? Right, so, right. So, yeah, it's 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 really, really great. Uh, there's really not much more to offer in 2016 that has the potential to put a perpetual smile on your face. So Sing Street Bazaar, unanimous number seven. What's your number six? My number six is probably the most 
weirdest the probably the weirdest bombs bonkers movies on this list. The banana pancakes pick up. Banana year. pancakes. Uh it's nocturnal animals. Interesting. It starts with three minutes of overweight naked women. It is just uh, over the credits, it just they're holding America paraphernalia. Talk about images burned into your retina. God, literally. Oh my goodness. I mean, they're dancing with sparklers, and I think that is that sets the tone perfectly for this movie, which is like, what? <laughs> what are we watching here? This is gonna be something bonkers, incredibly crazy. Um, you come to find out that those women are actually part of an art exhibit, an art which exhibit. is run by Amy Adams. She's a well-off artist in Los Angeles with her seemingly perfect husband, played by Army Hammer. Can we get Army Hammer more? Roles, substantive roles he's so good in things um but they <laughs> yeah. run it they both run in creative circles with colorful folks um she gets an email from an ex uh husband named uh or played by jake gyllenhaal and a copy of a book that he's written um and we flash called, called that, nocturnal animals called nocturnal animals and so we're flashing back to a, the time when they were together and also there's a separate offshoot in the movie where which is basically you're watching what she's reading in yeah the book. it's visualizing the book yeah so there's that story going on there's a little bit of the and, story and Dylan hall occupies the main character in the in that yes in that story exactly as well. so so he plays the ex and he also plays the protagonist in the storybook right. version or in the visualized story very non-linear it, timeline in yeah it, it sounds more complicated than it actually is or that i'm describing it but yeah um but basically, yeah, Tom Ford is the director, and he films the grisly sections of these of this book and sort of has it as a metaphor. She reads it, really. So there are parts of the relationship that r- apply to her life that right then and there and also that harken back to things that and, – and it unfolds in a way where you say, okay, well, now this was happening in the past, so this is how this made me feel, and this is the representation in the book, that, uh, that being Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Um, it's got great performances. As I mentioned, Aaron Taylor Johnson. That's well scene, deserved with, with Academy him, Award. With him and his goons in that story within the story. First, the first, first part sequence, where they where they run him off the road. Easily and, the most riveting and terrifying s- sequence of the year. Yeah. I mean, because you don't... The, the story goes that Jake Gyllenhaal and his family are taking a road trip. They're on this desolate stretch of road in, in Texas. And they start getting messed with by these... uh, by a number of of guys in a car and you can tell that they're up to no good but i think what gives it that fear is that you don't know what they're capable of no you've never met these characters before you don't know what it is that they you think that they can do they go back and forth between just kind of being energetic and obnoxious and latently latently terrifying mm -hmm. you know you really don't know what is at the other end of this scenario. Yeah. But you have your fears, and it seems like they slowly, slowly legitimize those fears as the sequence and it, uh, goes Yeah, on. it unfurls itself in a in a, in a a very unsettling way, as does the entire movie, really. Um, doesn't really give Amy Adams much to do. No. She kind of is just... I've heard it described as they could have had any character because all you have to do is she just takes her glasses off when she's done reading. Like, that's it, but <laughs> pretty she, much. She kind of has a, a more muted, almost ice queen persona in this movie where she's just uh, emotionally bankrupt Mm -hmm. (laughs) and her upper scale life with her husband or are they married? They are married. Yeah. Yeah. Who we find out is very 
polyamorous mm-hmm. <laughs> and she kind of just looks at i don't most... think she's on board with the polyamorous yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah it definitely I, is i think she she def- her acting assignment in this movie was to play emotionally dead as yeah. best as possible that's it I, yeah i was a little more mixed on this one i i enjoyed it in bursts that scene on the highway certainly stands neck and neck with some of the best scenes of the year but it never really coalesced into something cohesive or I don't know, like memorable by the time it was over. I was. I think, I, think I need to watch it again. I think memorable is more for me than the cohesion because I think mm-hmm. that there's beauty in the mess, and I think there's beauty in that. Okay. Um, and I think that I appreciated the the, the risks that it took mm-hmm. in this nonlinear timeline, and it just was is visually. I mean, it was visually a fantastic mm-hmm. movie. It's very very sumptuous is what I wrote down. Sumptuous. Um, but his mm-hmm. but you can tell that Ford is passionate for this particular story, and it's yeah. he's passionate for. The, the story that he's telling and so for me that made it a, a much more enjoyable watch i think there was i don't know if it was mismarketed or something but they, they made it seem like it was like going to be like ooh, a revenge story he's going to do this that, and the other and it sort of was but that part of it is actually more underwhelming than anything so i would say try to have a open mind and when you go into it i think and maybe it might have it might ring truer. So Ford yeah. was a photographer first, right? Before mm-hmm. he was before he was a filmmaker. Yeah, the movie has a very well. He's like a, he, you know, he's like a designer. A designer. Yeah, okay. like he designs sunglasses. Like that's the same Tom Ford who is like mm. this designer for sunglasses and stuff. Okay. So yeah, 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 he certainly has a really unique and interesting take on how mm-hmm. to structure a film. I have I still haven't seen a single man, unfortunately, but. It, it seems like it has a similar photographic quality to it that is uh, makes for pretty good viewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number six is, without a doubt, the most contentious entry on this list. And the one I'd assume Ryan is already sharpening his talons over. I might be throwing him a huge <laughs> piece of red meat here. It's uh, the pretty much the most binary love it or hate it experience of the year. It is the Neon Demon. Okay. From Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah. And after the atrocious Only God Forgives, which we both agreed on. Yep. Refn and I have had our makeup sex. Wow. And we've officially, gracefully marched forward. I thought this would be higher, honestly, for you. The way you talked about it. At the time, it was number one. Yeah. On on our last show, but I had obviously yet to see all the the greatness that 2016 would unveil. Okay. So it's number six. That's where it's landing. And I'm not going to defend this movie from a script standpoint or even an it's acting standpoint. It's hard to. Even, 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 even an acting standpoint. But I'll defend it on two fronts. First one being, I think it's a hypnotic and transfixing achievement. A cinematic achievement that really benefited from the theatrical experience. And the experience that I actually had writ large myself at the Cinerama Dome. And there are just visual and auditory choices in this movie that linger and simply they just you can't really let them go there's the tingly salacious cliff martinez score the the pulsating techno song demon dance by julian winding and reference own visual palette which i think is getting really decadent and uh and mesmerizing and made all more the more interesting by the fact that he's actually colorblind which I learned in the Q and A oh. that him and Elle Fanning, who plays the protagonist Jesse, had after the uh, the show that I saw, and I always this is the question I really wanted to ask Refn at the time, but my number just never got picked, and I want to know like, do you think that gives him an advantage visually because he's not interpreting things as directors customarily interpret things visually? Like, is there some element of being colorblind that? 
makes his choices something that wouldn't occur to most people. Yeah, you know, it's obviously going to be impossible for him to confirm that, but there's something about that which is really interesting, and I wanted to know more. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so I defend it from a visual standpoint, okay. and I also defend it from a Keanu Reeves standpoint. <laughs> well, that goes. <laughs> How without could saying. you not? Right? Yeah, that goes without saying. Yeah, uh, just from a thematic richness standpoint. Uh, Reffin set out to make a horror film about beauty as much as he did kind of an inversion of fairy tale tropes like the little red riding hood where in this film l fanning is the naive uh jesse who essentially could have just came in from a bus from somewhere in mm-hmm. podunk ohio or right. something and she's really naive really innocent kind of has an idea she wants to be in modeling but doesn't really know what she's getting into and at some point midway through the film there's a a transformation sequence it's almost you can call it the the narcissus moment where she is picked much to the consternation of her fellow models to be the basically the marquee model in this fashion show and the scene that Refn depicts this with is just so mesmerizing so transfixing and it involves her like literally uh, making out with her own reflection in the mirror and you really numerous times. yeah in, in <laughs> retrospect is like this is the moment where this girl where little bird riding hood became part wolf you know became a monster in and of herself mm-hmm. and that little spin on that whole kind of uh fairy tale element was really refreshing and interesting to me and i'm not going to say this movie isn't trash it is okay it's glorious well i don't have to say it then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's glorious trash and if i must i'll i'll take the bullet and be the dumpster diver <laughs> this year and but, and wholeheartedly recommend the neon demon and i i dare to say yes i'll never be as enthusiastic about a film as long as i live that contains necrophilia <laughs> and argento like oh, cannibal horror oh god the yeah. neon demon is my number six it was so it was i i, I can't disagree with your because you Fucker, you couched it in a way that I can't come Bring back it. from. I'm bulletproof. My no, no, no. I know. I'm saying because the thing is that <laughs> I agree with the things. I agree with the things that you liked, mm-hmm. and I think that it it is, and that's the one thing it ha- kind of has going for it is its visual style. Is it's so interesting? It's dazzling at points. Very. There is. I mean, the the there are certain images. I guess it almost looked like a Triforce from Zelda. Almost there was <laughs> yeah. like the three triangles within the within the one triangle. There was like right. two of those, that, yeah. two of those on top of one another. Um, but it just, I think that if we're looking at it on a spectrum of Drive to Only God Forgives, it's closer to Only God Forgives for me than it is to Drive. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to wonder now if Drive was almost a fluke because well, you have to, you have to see the earlier movies. That's true. So. That's true. But I mean, just in the past three, it's a decent sample size. It's you know three it's, movies. It's a, clear, it's, it's a, a few clear, years. It's a clear shift in his evolution as a filmmaker mm-hmm. that the trend of the last three movies seems to be where he's going. Okay. You know, and the the earlier movies were. They had their atmospherics, like the the Hollow Risings, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but they weren't as flashy as these movies are. And yeah. they, they do mostly, like they don't really have scripts. You know, they have situations, and it's mostly told from a visual perspective. Yeah, and and you're you're having to you're having to piece those different situations together, and it's tough to make a coherent movie out of that. I think uh, I don't buy Elle Fanning as a model. It's okay to be wrong. I'm sorry, I don't. I understand she's very young. <laughs> I get that. 
aspect of the Red Riding Hood thing, which is an interesting way to put it. Mm. But I don't really think she was any more or less attractive or model-like as any of the other girls, which maybe was the point. I thought they sold the fact that she had an X factor, as Simon Cowell would say. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I, I, I really do believe they sold the fact that there was something about her that was different and almost untouchable. Mystifying, but... Untouchably but- pure. But it doesn't. But I yeah. But I don't know if it ever really comes out as all of, you know. Because there's the that that scene you're talking about preceding that. Is well, it's that her naivety. It's her personality that adds those levels to the to the to the model for me because she's so like, what am I doing? I'm like a deer in headlights. Yeah. It's something that, there you know they get the 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 guy who hires her like the big uh, the big modeling guy right. Yeah. He he looks at her, does a double take, and then he's just staring. Right. Because he sees potentially his own career salvation in her. And like she is the one, the diamond in the rough that comes along once in a career. But I go back again, her? Like, I I, I just, I I, I didn't see it. I guess Mm -hmm. I don't see, I'm supposed to see that he thought that in the movie, but I don't see it at all. And I I disagree. So, it's okay to be wrong, I guess. Um, (laughs) But the thing is that I can't. I don't want to get into the end so much mm-hmm. because it needs to be seen to be believed. It does. It goes to some very it goes to places. A very very interestingly dark places, which I like on a just as an idea standpoint. Yeah. Well, but, it, and, it, and, and well, for, from a visual standpoint, excuse me. Well, I should it, say. it ties home the, the 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 points of the movie in terms of who this character is and how her contemporaries respond to her you know like they, she is literally something to be <laughs> talk about red riding Hood too i mean yeah yeah so they all want a piece of her yeah literal or figurative Liter- yeah however they can i guess <laughs> so i i i i appreciate the visual style the visual aspects of it even people who i t- I've talked to who hated the movie yeah give it that you right. know it's something that is not easy to forget and that is and that honestly kind of is what only God forgives had going for it was that it made no sense and it much had... less so for me, but same idea. Yeah. But yeah, it was similar, similar type of thing. Is that that's the one redeeming quality you can get out of it? Is that oh, it, at least it looks nice. It's beautiful. You can take a you could take any any moment of it and make a postcard out of it almost. Right. So, um, so yeah, it doesn't it doesn't quite do for. It's it's not quite the love letter to Los Angeles as another movie that I'm sure we'll both talk about, but. Um, or that I'll talk about at least. Well, you could say it's uh, Los Angeles through the looking glass, maybe. Okay. And she's Alice? She's Alice and the... <laughs> and, the and the caterpillar? Or, or, she's or, Alice and the, and the Queen of Hearts. In the, in the <laughs> drug-addled caterpillar's mind or Cheshire Cat's mind. Right. Well, okay. Well, I don't... I don't hate it. I don't hate the pick. I knew you were going to talk, but I don't. But I, the thing is that I, I didn't dislike it enough to where I'm like, no, it doesn't belong on. Like, tell, you're not. You're not opposed to the point where you're like, you're a fucking idiot. No, I don't. Because I because you you know you you did a good job defending it. So it just Thank wasn't you. really on my. No, it wasn't. It wasn't, wasn't on the radar. It wasn't. No, it it wasn't on the radar. And really, the, the more like a curiosity for you. The you you were the one reason why I actually watched it. Actually, mm. so. Take that as you will, wherever whichever side you want to fall on. Okay. We do those it's kind free of things. on Amazon Prime right now. We do those now. kind of things for each other. Exactly. Exactly. What's your number five? My number five is quite possibly the funniest and most quotable film outside of Deadpool, which is The Nice Guys. Ah. Uh, 
Um, Shane Black's follow-up, uh, Outdoing Iron Man 3, which is getting some groundswell of, like, being a great Marvel movie. Oh, bullshit. Disagree. Completely, completely disagree. I'm completely on the other end of that. It's one of the worst, I'd say. I, I mean, it's... I've never even had, like, a 10% inkling to revisit it. Nope. Ever. Nope. Um, and it basically, it, it gives us what what filmgoers have been clamoring for, which is an updated version of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Because yeah. there are... Once every 10 years, yeah, we get so, this kind of a Shane Black movie. So many elements of that movie that are in this movie. And it's great to see the... Again, we use this word avatars almost of, of the characters for each of these movies. Um, but Gossin gives his best performance in of this movie. 100%. And Ever? No, no, no. Just, just of this year. Of this year. Yeah, I'd have to think about ever. That's that'd be interesting. It'd be a really interesting argument, and you may not, you may talk me into this one being maybe his best ever from a comedic standpoint. Top three, possibly, and one of his comedic roles for sure. Yeah, but he and Russell Crowe are fantastic with their chemistry because that is the one thing that this movie is based on: is how well do these actors have? You know, how much chemistry do they have with one another, and how much, and how funny can they be? in the roles that they're given. Russell Crowe's a little more the straight laced and you know, he's the straight man and Gosling is more of the wild card often the, often the weeds um, trying to get his life together type of guy. Um, and that balance is never really too much of one or too much of the other. It's a per- they perfectly complement one another. Yeah. Um, it's so tightly plotted, it would take forever to actually describe every bit of it, really. Well, but see, that's one of the things that it detracted from it for me, is that I thought it was very overplotted, m- messily plotted. But that didn't bother me. I, I guess it's just, you, you, I was able to, you, to, to get the bullet points of what they were going for, and there were little journeys that they took along the way. But there's an overarching story throughout the whole thing. I think if you keep your eyes on that... I think it makes it a lot more enjoyable and you don't get so caught up in, Oh, they're going to this party or they're going to do this. And this person's going to do this. And um, I mean, it, it it takes place in the, in the 1970s in Los Angeles um, absolutely drips with that time period. Like it is just soaked in it. It is so beautiful. The fashion, the music, the drugs, (laughs) you know, every part about it is so seventies. But getting a star turn really, even with these two, characters these two heavyweight actors is angry rice who steals tremendous steals the whole movie practically as his daughter as ryan gosling's daughter um it's absolutely hilarious and it was my probably close to if not the only movie where i i do the the run it back where basically you can just sit in the theater if they said we're going to show it again i would say that was your run it back run it back again (laughs) show it again i i would not care watching it yeah. Uh, a second time immediately. That's a good so. uh, category for discussion. I think is the run it back. The category. run it back movies. If somebody came into a theater and said, "You know what? We'll just even if you had to pay for it again," because I see there there could be some element to it if you had, if you didn't have, if it was free. But it's just like, hey, we're gonna show this movie again. You can just stay in your seats. Which one would you do it with? I would do it with this movie. Right. Number five, the nice guys. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this movie too. It won't make my list, but. It had some of the most enjoyable laugh-out-loud moments of the year. Fucking shit! <laughs> everything at that substitute for the, the Playboy Mansion that, yeah. that they're at. Uh, just all the, the hijinks. King, the, yeah. the mermaid shot. The, uh, the the dumping of the body. Oh, the, yeah. There's, was, a, there's <laughs> the whole the whole 15-minute scene in there is just... It's almost like a Keystone Cops mm-hmm. film, almost. So just cutting back and forth, running around, following right. different characters, and just madness all over the place. Yeah. So. It, again, a little too messy for for me to be something I, I liked you know above average enough to make the list but in terms of what came out this summer 
not much better on offer. No, it really was. Than the nice guys. Yeah. Good pick. My number five is Everybody Wants Some! Oh, with two exclamation points. With two points. exclamation points <laughs> from Dickie Links. Dickie Links. Richard Linklater, the 80s set spiritual sequel to the 70s set Days to Confuse, which you just watched this I year. I did. Thank you, Clayton Shank. It's for one of my greatest accomplishments this year is getting you to sit down and watch that. The former movie featured a Zeppelin song in its title and this one obviously comes from Van Halen mm-hmm. it makes me think maybe another trilogy is on the way oh, with a with a, a 90s. 90 set movie my two guesses for what it's called smells like teen spirit mm-hmm. or wonderwall <laughs> i like wonderwall better cuz it's a little less, less obvious a little less obvious yeah i think yeah. it's yeah Wonderwall might be what it is. But they'll all be playing water polo or something. <laughs> they'll all be competitive water yeah. polo players or something. This definitely, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, is, this is definitely one of those warm and optimistic movies that we. It was, it was in our preamble to this list. Uh, just an absolute joy of a movie and a movie you can just completely melt right into. It's really about nothing more than young men coming into adulthood and the transformative mm-hmm. life experiences that entails that. And framed here on the character Jake, played by Blake Jenner. And you and I are definitely predisposed to loving this movie. Yeah. I mean, it's set in college baseball, mm-hmm. and it's around those personalities that we all grew up with and can recognize in various shades with people who we actually played baseball with. Yeah. Uh, but so, that doesn't preclude other people from enjoying it, because no, they are still very funny, very real characters. It's still a human story yeah. at heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jake is a freshman baseball player, uh, and it charts him and the rest of his teammates uh, final few days before the first day of college. And uh, for Jake, obviously, his first day of college ever. And the rest are, you know, junior, senior. has been around the block a few times. But this is just classic Linklater. A philosophical and social examination of group dynamics. It also happens to rock fucking hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there are so many, like, characters here that I just want to be friends with in real life. Yeah, uh, Glenn Powell plays a character named Finnegan. God, this guy is like my fictional best best friend, <laughs> yeah. man. This dude is nails. One of the most memorable sequences, or it's actually a joke that gets kind of capitalized on later in the movie that's set up earlier. It's where it kind of sets up these guys as like when they're just hanging out by themselves, mm-hmm. all they talk about is getting laid, right? Mm-hmm. That's the only that's preoccupation. Yeah. As you do in college, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. And... They end up going to a party with a bunch of kind of artsy types toward the end, most of the team. And for some reason now, Finnegan notices that all the guys, all they're talking about is baseball. <laughs> Even though they're around all these interesting, creative, beautiful young women, you mm-hmm. know. And and uh, so Finnegan's talking to a girl and some of the guys come up and basically cock block him right and then and then as he's walking out in disgust they kind of follow him like oh where are you going i'm sorry we you know we didn't mean it and he goes guys let me tell you you know when when it's just us all we're talking about is baseball and when all these beautiful women are around all you're talking about is uh no i'm sorry i got that backwards yeah, but yeah. when all these beautiful beautiful women around all you're talking about is baseball and it's fucked up yeah <laughs> and just he wa- was so upset yeah, just walks away in utter yeah. utter disgust you know but you know what it's so funny because nothing comes of it it's not that they're going to be they're not going to be friends or you know yeah. that their life is going to be any different whatsoever the mm. next morning it's yeah. all just going to be there in a way that there are absolutely zero stakes to any of it but it's great because there is a uh, a bit of beauty in that too i think there's definitely a there's something to be said for that like just busting each other's balls and just kind of having that 
male group because they all live in a house together. There's a baseball house yeah. where they all live. They don't right. live. They live on campus, so they all have to share this house. And uh, and just <laughs> yeah, what could go wrong there? Right. Oh, of course. Yeah, a bunch of yeah. college dates kids and uh, the I forget the char- the main character, not the main character, but the the, the hotshot player. Uh, wait, the, the the pitcher or the other one? No, McReynolds. The, McReynolds. Yeah. As soon as you meet him, he walks in and, and Blake Jenner. He goes, "Oh, I'm a pitcher." He goes, "Hey, by the way, just let you know." fucking hate pictures <laughs> yeah, yeah and it just like sets up yeah, this that's so baseball this group yes because there is a definite distinction between the position pitchers. players and exactly and yeah. yeah so and but i don't think you need that knowledge that interpersonal knowledge you can, of a you baseball can, team to really kind of to, to for, for it to work yeah but i think if you do it all that makes it all the better oh totally there's mcreynolds yeah he's the talented but ultra competitive guy i love mm-hmm. the ping pong scene oh god yeah uh there's he broke the paddle yeah <laughs> throws the racket at him there's yeah jay the MLB prospect that transferred from a, I think a JUCO, a JUCO or something, yeah, and yeah. just big leagues as teammates to an insane <laughs> degree, and also he like he wears his insecurities like they're a, a second uniform or something, and I yeah, this movie is all characters and situations and that day in the life kind of feeling, and it doesn't really contain I think the subtle profundities of Days and Confused, but uh, on reflection, it, it really does present those like the challenges to youth identity that result from kind of like stepping into a larger world with all the different styles and personalities and cliques that you're likely to encounter. And it's this really messy roiling, like melting pot of like, you know, where you're basically hammering out who you're going to be for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And this movie kind of captures just a few days uh, in that whole process. So Diggy Lynx seems to be a perennial favorite he's on on your list on my list every year and this year is no exception everybody wants some one thing that that it's kind of an underrated aspect of it is the at that time in in 1980 the drinking age was 18 Hmm. at least in this where they were in texas at least it was 18 and there is something there is a definite element of that uh, uh, because there's a lot of like they go to a happy hour and they share a picture and they are at home and they're drinking and they're doing all this stuff when you're in college, when you're the drinking age is 21, you know, for me, it was like, well, half of my friends can go to a bar and watch a game. And it's like, I can't get in. So the fact that you can go to be in college immediately and have that experience where you're, you're, you know, you're just, you're, you're using alcohol as like a social lubricant tool. Yeah. And you're all talking and you're all busting each other's balls and giving each other shit and stuff like that. There was a real fun element because when they went to the bar the first time I was like oh my gosh are they gonna like get carded are they gonna how are they gonna let this freshman in and everything yeah and but no it everybody was just there and and so yeah it was it was an interesting thing that like a definite difference from you know 30 plus years ago to today so yeah yeah. I wouldn't say we should lower the drinking age (laughs) but it was but it was definitely a something uh, something that that stuck out to me a well-realized snapshot of a bygone era for sure so uh, we got number four my number four is a movie another one the other one that i talked about uh a lot in my uh in in the fall preview um again another late summer movie so i won't hammer it too much but it's hell or high water good pick um this is a it's a modern realistic heist movie almost and i've said on this podcast and to anyone who listened that the heist is my favorite genre of movie sure. um the caper the yeah heist. on the surface it, it's a story of two brothers who steal Small amounts from local banks in order to pay back the defaulted loan on the property they grew up on um, in order to save that land for reasons that become clearer as the movie unfolds. 
Um, the acting in particular is the strong suit. I mean, everybody gives fantastic performances. Chris Pine, uh, Ben Foster, Jeff Bridges especially. Guys, is, can Jeff Bridges just cement that role into the pantheon of Hollywood roles as like that's the Jeff Bridges role? Yeah. The, he's just the, the, King, surly, King, the King Tankerous yeah. old veteran who's on his like last go around the sun. Yeah. But he he basically does everything but say I'm getting too old for this shit. That's, like, pretty, that's, that's what he wanted to <laughs> say. Yeah, he really but did. Say it. Right. Um, but I mean, I love because this movie's not Deadpool. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, on that same note, like I love movies that kind of make you root for bad guys. They're not bad guys in general. I mean, they're doing bad things. But they're they're not doing bad, bad things, guys. but they're not bad guys. And so to have well, that, one of them at well, least is well, yeah. But I mean, well, the, the reasons they're doing it are pure at heart, I guess. And right. you know, with, but the way they're going about it is it's, they could go I think about it's more it a different complicated way. between the two yeah. in terms of why they're doing it, mm-hmm. but. One half of that is definitely with uh, pure intentions, mm-hmm. than the other half. Yeah, and so because there are there there are complexities to these characters, and there are other sides of these potentially you know quote unquote bad guys, and it's things that maybe don't get explored in other movies. What are the reasons for doing this? What are the reasons for that? And this one is a purely you know familial, almost like a almost like a your like a survival instinct almost, you know, they need to do this. This is not only monetarily, but emotionally, this is where we grew up. This is where this, that, and the other happened and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does a great job. And I think I mentioned this on the last show that it uses the metaphor of the white man taking the land from the native Americans sort of, and uses that as a lens of showing through how the banks took these lands from Mm -hmm. back from these people almost Mm -hmm. and so it uses that as an interesting metaphor Hmm. almost like and i thought and and really because there's a there's a lot there's a big portion of this movie that is surrounded by native americans and and i think that using that is a really interesting and really effective way to give a different light to the 2008 financial crisis and who it hit and who it affected and things like that this is a great uh I want to say like a um, a micro example of how that affected normal people. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it's it, it's the type of low budget, big impact movie that mm-hmm. doesn't get made anymore that we were talking about at the beginning. Yeah, it seems like it could have come out in the '90s, <laughs> like it just mm-hmm. in that time period where you're telling a specific story, maybe a story that is crucial to the time period, but you're not putting 150 170 million dollars behind it it's a more of a of a of a realistic grounded story about people who are affected by a particular thing so yeah um but when they're made well i think they're super effective and i think uh hell or high water is that way right the one interesting comment i when i was reading about the movie and listening to people talk about the movie was what if the ben foster and chris pine characters switched roles because we Ben Foster is really good at this kind of unhinged, crazy yeah, it's role. It's kind of his thing now. Even you yeah. know, like Three Ten to Yuma, mm-hmm. uh, he's usually Alpha Dog. Alpha Dog, yeah, he's good at playing a psycho, and mm-hmm. and he's definitely the kill crazy rampage kind of psycho half of this brother relationship. The what the I hope he doesn't do anything crazy to mess this up, which yeah. he does, and he he does thing he does crazy things. Right. But you're hoping that he won't do too much to <laughs> outside of the realm of like uh, yeah he, to screw it all he, up. he's the kind of guy who would unnecessarily ratchet up the potential consequences of a a given romp you know mm-hmm. like just just yeah. because it's the juice exacerbate and it, and it, it yeah and it, and it gets him going 
And I would have loved to see kind of Chris Pine, who's normally reserved, more yeah. reserved, take on that crazy role and have Ben Foster be the more subdued. Well, you get guy. that, I guess, in Smoke and Aces. Yeah. If you want to see unhinged Chris Pine, you'd have to watch Smoke and Aces. God, I forgot he was even in Underrated that. gem from the early 2000s. <laughs> well, was a Baroga who who shot down your Smoke and Aces love one year or something? Probably. He, he would. That seems like a position. He's not he here, take. so yes, he did. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> love you, Mike. My number four has already been discussed. It's Moonlight from okay. writer-director Barry Jenkins, and I think we gave it its due. So my number three... You knew this had to be on my list. It was La La Land. I'm a sucker for the musical. I'm a sucker for Daddy Gaz. I can't. Wait, what? Daddy yeah. Daddy Gaz Gosling. Daddy Gaz. You never heard that? Did, no, you, did, you didn't just make that. up? I didn't just make that up. No, that's a Pete Holmesism. That sounds like a like a Ryan McCarran. <laughs> right, Ryan McCarran Sponta- special. Spontaneous Daddy Gaz. butchering of the English language. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a. Um, this I think what's cool about it is it, it I don't okay hang on three two one what's cool about it is it uses the city of Los Angeles in a way that hasn't really been seen since Woody Allen took on New York mm-hmm. it is a character it's a living breathing character in this movie mm-hmm. that isn't used any other way in any other movie before or or since i mean really i you know who knows in the future um but it gives you the positive and the negative of trying to make it in this particular town the show business the business of show uh it stars emma stone as uh, an actress or an aspiring actor trying to make it big uh who ends up meeting Meet cute, I guess, sort of. <laughs> I don't really know if it is or not. Um, Ryan Gosling, who is obsessed with jazz and obsessed with um, the mechanics of jazz and what it means as an American art form or as 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 our American music, really, uh, and follows their relationship as they both try to strike it rich with their particular dreams, and that is a big theme in this movie is the dreamer aspect of it and and again in in, in a similar vein of don't think twice is what are you willing what are you willing to give up to be able to have this dream and is it worth it for you to give these things up to get what you wanted and it's an interesting thought experiment as well with Mm -hmm. it Um, but on the more positive side of it music is fantastic um it's a little bit more of a raw musical, and I know that's a weird thing to think because it is so pristine and the, the and it's cut together so wonderfully and the cityscape is so beautiful. But the singing in it is not great. Like it's not like they have good voices, Gosling and Passable, Emma Stone, right? but they're not like Broadway ready. No, you know, and I think that that gives it a little bit of charm because you're able to cast these two electric chemistry laden actors as these two characters but they're imperfect in a weird way <laughs> you know in 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 what they're trying to to do and what they're trying to accomplish in 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 the movie um but it is so dreamy and it is so positive and it is beautifully shot and the follow up for Damien Chazelle for 
our number one film of twenty. For the second time, it's been a, a number one total. Uh, the Dark Knight being the other time. Uh, um, let's just. When, uh, <laughs> let's, all right, fine, <laughs> fine. You you want to take a red pen to history? <laughs> well, by all means, but I'll don't expect do your, it. Don't expect your credibility to survive. If in the text. president can do it, so can I. Oh um, God! But uh, politifact that statement <laughs> from you. <laughs> But it's it Politifact 2008 Ryan's number one film is not The Dark Knight. All right, fine. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so it, it, it's a it's an interesting follow up, and and I think it's an interesting thing just in terms Glorious of Glorious Bastards. You forgot about that. Oh, that's true. Oh, you're, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Um, it's an interesting sort of change from the grittiness and the really interpersonalness of Whiplash to make this sprawling colorful beautiful movie full of primary colors and you know it's not just like black and blues and still thematically some through lines there too though. there are yeah but i think that but it, but in terms but stylistically a different, such a different tone oh my god it's it's just it, 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 I mean, it's, it, it's a thriller yeah <laughs> that's true <laughs> at its core it is a pulse pounding thriller yeah and la la land is just something to soak in and enjoy but it's interesting too in that I, I, maybe this happens with movies that get these universe this universal acclaim you know there is even now revision is history because everybody that i talked to had enjoyed it it loved it and everything like that and now there's this groundswell now that it, ha- it won every golden globe and now it's you know it's nominated for 14 academy awards which yeah. like Okay, let's take it easy a little bit. I loved it, but I mean, fourteen? Come on, a little excessive. A little bit I, excessive. I don't, I don't think it deserves to be put in the same category as All About Eve, you know, and all these movies that yeah. command all these these big, yeah, Oscar yeah. movies. No, and not even Titanic, I would say either. I don't, I don't think it's that something that will leave that much of an impression on Hollywood. Yeah, and it's it's not a generation once in a generational. No, it's, it's not going to be. I mean, maybe it will. Who knows? But yeah, maybe in maybe in hindsight, we'll come to see this as a, a serious cinematic landmark. But it's interesting too, because now I feel like there's this groundswell of like, well, it wasn't that good, and I'm like, what are you talking about? There's always backlash. There always to things is. that are pop, that are popular. So I mean, so I don't know, but I, I think you, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's unfortunate. It's probably been hyped to hell for you. But if you try to go in with an open mind and enjoy the music and enjoy what it has to offer for you. Uh, I think it's a really enjoyable time at the movies. One last thing I'll say about it. Very interesting casting choices. I talked about Gosling and Emma Stone. This apparently was supposed to be Miles... um, Teller? Yes. Miles Teller and Emma Watson. In that the was the original roles. too. Yes, hmm. that was I guess who he wanted, or maybe who the and I think maybe the studio made yeah, next. He, he didn't get Gosling and Stone until pretty late later. in the process. So I think that that would have been a very interesting and almost a very different movie because these aren't like major stars. No, but Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling are, and. So I, I, it just would have been a very interesting, different type of film, I think. Yeah. I, I'm glad it's this way. Yeah, this this may be the film I regret the most leaving off of my list this mm. year. I, I didn't have it on my list, but that's not to say I did not enjoy it, because I did. I think I need to watch it again to really articulate how much I like it. Mm-hmm. I saw it in the theater. I saw it the way you're, you're supposed to see it. If you are going to get anything out of this movie, it's going to be on a big screen. And I just, I, I don't know. When it came down to it, there may just be 10 or, in my case, 11 right. movies I like this year more. I'm a, I know, I'm a cheating scoundrel. I can't believe I know it. I am. <laughs> um, There's nothing sacred. Am I the only one taking them? Am I the only one who gives a shit about the rules? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, 
I really did enjoy this movie. It's it was kind of like a tonic for all of the just bitter antipathy I had for everything going on in current events, mm. and it was just a really pure piece of escapism yeah. that I probably will enjoy a lot more on another viewing and maybe with great regret tell you at another point where this would have made my list. <laughs> uh, for now, I had to leave it off until I see it again, but I will definitely not argue with the with the purity and sanctity of La La Land. Please don't. I'll punch you in the fucking solar plexus. <laughs> All right. Let me say, but I, I really don't like Gosling that much in this movie. Really? No, I think he... He's he's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like him much more in a movie like The Nice Guys than this movie because I, I just think Emma Stone runs circles around him. Huh. I, I think she's so infectious and so captivating when she's on screen. It has just this jubilant enthusiasm that I think she just overshadows Gosling at almost every turn. I mean, there were a couple of monologues where Gosling's talking about jazz and why he loves mm-hmm. jazz, and the the scenes are are lit and choreographed in such a way where. I think it helps Gosling out a lot to really elevate the the performance, but I think Teller and Watson would have been much more interesting because I hmm. think they're I think they're more on an even keel in terms of their abilities, mm-hmm. and I don't know like I Gosling is kind of like always I'm always kind of lukewarm on him hmm. now. I mean I've really enjoyed him in plenty of films, but other times I just you know I, I don't I think he's getting by. With everything from the neck up. <laughs> so, not we're, we're, bad, though. Yeah, not bad, though. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah. anyway, that's all I say. Like it, but that. All right. Uh, number three. My number three is a sexy movie. Mm. This is The Handmaiden. Oh! From director Park Chan-wook. Uh, Again, this, just missed. Just, just missed, missed for, for me, okay. yeah. This yeah. was on my fall anticipation list from our previous show that we did. Park Chan-wook's previous film, Stoker, I liked quite a bit. Did not make my list that year, but unfortunately did not do well in the American box office. Probably a certifiable box office bomb. Unfortunate, and actually pushed Park back to Korea to make this this follow-up film set in the 1930s in Korea under Japanese colonial rule. Uh, This is just a gorgeous, lush, melt the walls sexy <laughs> venus flytrap mm-hmm. of a movie that it, it's certainly interesting use of word interesting word use <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let the listeners I'll allow it <laughs> I'll, I'll let the listeners decide how 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 strong those uh those that descriptive language is uh it certainly wins my vote for production design and costuming this year absolutely gorgeous moving art piece to watch i feel um to get into the plot, I think would be a disservice because this movie is so reliant on the twist and turns of the plotting that it uh, would be a, a probably criminal to reveal anything yeah. that happens in it too explicitly. But uh, it's taken from a 2002 novel, Fingersmith, by Sarah Waters. That <laughs> shut up. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, that movie was set in 19th century London. This movie is transposed to korea as i said by park to make it a little more relevant to the market he was making the film in but the narrative unfolds like this the twisty tricky stuff of fiction right it's a real page turning storytelling event and it kind of leaves your early assumptions about where it's going just bludgeoned and left for dead you know where you start this movie and where you end this movie are drastically different positions very different 
Uh, in a nutshell, you could say it's about a woman who's hired as a handmaiden to a Japanese heiress, while also the handmaiden is also involved in a plot to extort the extort and defraud her out of her inheritance. Um, past that, there are some seriously sexy <laughs> scenes here, uh, particularly girl-on-girl action, not unlike yeah. Mulholland Drive and Blue is the Warmest Color, but they're tantalizingly erotic but also surprisingly humorous mm-hmm. uh, uh i did not expect the humor that was going to come out of this film it looked more of like a, a a dark kind of thriller from the onset just looking at the poster i, did, I never saw the trailer i did not expect the humor to come through in this movie but uh one particular moment in a, a fiery love scene between uh suki who's the handmaiden and uh lady hideko who's the heiress uh, comes to mind. Suki's the younger but more experienced kind of mink and <laughs> that enters this <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You can say you could say her intention are as sharp as scissors. Uh she enters this moment <laughs> Assuming uh, Hideko is is a virgin and has no sexual experience, we assume the same until that sex scene is revisited at a later point in the movie after we've had a much had much more context thrown in, and it completely reinterprets how we're viewing the scene. And so we know that Hideko is now not who she says she is, and actually has quite a bit of experience in these matters. And the, one of the funniest lines of the movie is, <laughs> and as Hideko is really surprising Suki in this interaction, and Suki says something to the, to the effect of, wow, you must be a natural. <laughs> <laughs> Which I seriously laughed out loud. Yeah. Like one of the funniest things in a movie this year. Uh, amazingly, this wasn't Korea's official submission to the Academy. <laughs> oh, really? It was not. <laughs> amazingly, it wasn't, even though it surely should have been. Yeah. Um, I think Park is not really well regarded by the Korean establishment from what I've been reading. And they decided to, put, I don't even know the name of the movie, but they decided to put something forward this year that was much more mainstream n- nationalistic kind of okay. uh, appealing to how Korea would choose to be identified on the global scene. Um, but regardless, I think it's, it's an absolutely pure cinematic event. It's uproarious, sexy and has a, labyrinthine plot that's just to die for so yeah. the handmaid's my number three i saw this movie by myself good man in a theater with... maybe maybe not a good man no I well I, the, there were extenuating circumstances yeah. behind the, that situation a lot of guys with trench coats in the crowd it's just there, there was one at least <laughs> and it was you <laughs> no right yeah it was but it was definitely an interesting experience seeing it and watch and watching it and then also having to deal with like the potential judgment of the other people in the audience. Like they maybe wouldn't care if it was any other movie that you were sitting there by yourself, but like a movie that is so just relies so heavily on these like graphic sex, lesbian, lesbian sex scenes. It almost, you almost start to be like, well, I hope they don't think I'm, I'm really just here because I really want to see this movie. Like (laughs) it's not why I'm, I heard this is a very artful film and I want to see what's in it. I am curious about it. I curious. But no, no. <laughs> I, 
I fully bought into it. What's your number two film, Ryan? My number two film... Oh, excuse me, while I stretch it out here. Oh, we're about um, to get into some gymnastics and no, uh, rationalization? No, it's not. It's not like that, no. Um, so we we discussed a little bit like this uh, off the air. My number two is Manchester by the Sea. Oh, okay. Um, so I don't want to use... Because that... I want to judge it on its own. Sure. But I can't. It's Yeah, I, I totally get that. You know, it, it it's it's a tough thing. I had a, a very life-changing thing happen in my life this year. Mm-hmm. My mother passed away mm-hmm. last year, early in the year. So I look at it through that lens. And I understand that that is not fair. <laughs> no, but that's inescapable. It, it is, but it doesn't give you a chance to... St- because you are not a huge fan of this movie. Right. And I, without, I'm no judgment whatsoever. Totally, totally. I want to know why you didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me? Yeah, it's. Can you give me like a synopsis? Like just, just you know, break I, it down. I didn't like it because one, I, I just don't think Affleck's performance is all it's hyped up to be. I think it's pretty uneven and uh, just static. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of really ties into the script more than anything. I mean, Affleck could have maybe elevated this a little bit with a better performance, but I think it's just the nature of the character and how it's delivered that I didn't really buy into because for me, it felt like spending, you know, it felt like spending two hours with somebody who's in abject misery. And I didn't really see any kind of evolution Mm -hmm. in that. It was, it's kind of, you know, where he starts at the beginning is where he finishes at the end. And the, the, the ending dissolve really ties into really supposed to make you feel like that was the point of the movie Mm -hmm. is that grief is something that cannot be really it's not something that that you will move on from right it's only something that changes in 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 its in its very shape over Mm -hmm. the course of time you know um and if, if, if that's the angle you're taking into the movie i totally agree that that's there but for me, it just didn't make a, a movie experience that I really just got a lot from, if that makes any sense. It's not It's not a movie that it's meant to be enjoyed. Like it's, oh, absolutely. It's, it's a very strange thing to say yeah. when you're coming at it from an entertainment medium, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. But I felt like that character portrayed grief better than really any other movie I've seen. Hmm, okay. And I think it's because of that, and it's because of that in there, in that basically it's all kind of bubbling under the surface with him. It comes out in spurts. He has this anger and this sadness that is sort of intertwined, mm-hmm. and it comes out when he yells at the tenant, when he, when he gets into a fight with his tenant in the <laughs> Which beginning. Which was actually a really funny interaction. Yeah. And then it comes out when he gets into a random bar fight after these guys giving him the eye for two hours at a bar. He gets drunker and drunker and then just beats the shit out of these guys. Yeah. Um, There is, I mean, sometimes it's all right to let yourself feel bad. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is his state of mind in this movie in that, yeah, like it does – it, it well also what happens in the movie that uh, gives him this grief is completely out of the range of anything any of us could ever experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it rightly puts him in a funk. <laughs> I mean, it, of course, you know, and it, it's interesting that that character gives him this particular job where he moves away from where this tragedy happens. He moves to Boston 
and he becomes a handyman of all things having to fix other people's lives without actually fixing anything mm -hmm. in his own life right um but i felt like yeah there's a lot of bad things that happen in this movie you keep sort of waiting for it to to come back where it's like oh finally something good happens or this happens and things like that but it never comes mm -hmm. and that's okay and that's why i think that it mirrors the real the realism of these types of situations so well right and it captures not only that that area so beautifully that area that it takes place in but that it takes and but every shot i feel like is so meticulous and i feel like it's so painstaking in that in, in its detail that uh yeah i mean it captures that small sound feel and it captures mm -hmm. what it feels like to to be sad and it's okay that you're sad and if you're one thing when you're one and it may take a long time to get to where you need to be yeah but um but yeah i think i thought it was fantastic yeah. i thought it was I, I think it was a tiny bit too long but i thought that um really every single section of it just spoke to me in a oh. way that i haven't i hadn't had in a, in, in a long time yeah no that's really interesting i think the i think the corner of our disagreement the cornerstone of our disagreement with the movie because i totally agree that the potential for that movie is found in these pieces that mm -hmm. kenneth lonergan gives us yeah like the, that is that is potentially there in that movie but i think for me our 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 take on the film lives or dies with affleck's performance yeah because it has to yeah it has to because that's that's what the whole movie is weighing on mm -hmm. and I, the, I think the main difference on my end is that I just did not get that performance. Okay. Like it didn't, it didn't resonate with he you. He didn't sell it for me. Okay. And, and I think if he did more, I would be like lockstep with you on this. But I think, I think it's the performance that is the, he, the largest variable here, whether or not you, you, you buy it or not. Right. But I, but then again, I would also argue that if he did more, it may have seemed very showy and it's and and it's and so it oh does that not what you no, were no, saying it's not even that, that like i would okay. I, I would buy a different actor giving this same performance but i i did not you know i didn't get something like you know affleck is was being compared to like this is his brando performance you know this is mm -hmm. this, is, this is on the waterfront um i didn't i mean dialogue aside just from his you gotta if you're if you're gonna give that kind of performance you really have to be you really have to have expressive features that sell things without saying anything. Mm -hmm. And for me, it just wasn't there, you know? And so I would totally buy a different actor giving this performance and it would work so much better in the context of the movie for me. So I, I think that unfortunately, like that's the, that's the one place where we like split where we fork. Yeah, of course. You know, is, is that is Affleck's performance. Um, uh, be, because for me, like the experience, you know, not having gone through what you've gone through and not being it, not looking at it through those lens, you know, mm -hmm. which is a, a perfectly valid and, and moving way to approach a movie right. like that. And I, I totally agree with you that, yeah, this, <laughs> I, this is a totally, this is a great pick for you on this list. Um, yeah. It's not for but, everyone. No, it's this not. This movie's not no, for everyone. No, no. But for me, as someone who hasn't had that experience and just looking at it as a movie, mm -hmm. it was like, it made me think of the Revenant. Okay, <laughs> where, the, where there's it's just like, like oh, where, so much. Of this where, where the, there's so much misery <laughs> yeah. compiled and compiled and compiled. Yeah, 
and didn't even have the novelty of a bear rape mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to, to really kind of make it something that I could remember, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, just like this completely divorced of real life, real life circumstances as a movie. I just didn't get a lot from it, you know, which uh, is, you know, one way to take this movie mm-hmm. and your way of taking it yeah. is very well and eloquently, well, very well argued and eloquent. And I totally accept it. Well, what is your number two? My, my number two is probably the biggest surprise of the year for me. Really? It is The Edge of Seventeen. Wow, that is yeah. a surprise. Yeah, I loved this movie. Flat out loved it. I saw it twice in consecutive nights. Wow. Uh, it's another movie I got a screening for, mm-hmm. a screener for this year, which I'm really glad, glad I did because I probably wouldn't have seen it otherwise. Uh, it's from first-time director Kelly Freeman Craig, and it stars Haley Steinfeld as the the titular 17-year-old. And I'm just going to make a a prediction that will maybe... It's a prediction that will not be vindicated for for decades. Mm -hmm. But I think she's the next Meryl Streep. Wow. That's how good I think. Big words. That's how good I think Haley Steinfeld is. She creates a fully fleshed character in this movie in probably five minutes. She should have been Oscar nominated for it, and I think the fact maybe that, ironically instead of Meryl Streep, <laughs> maybe instead of Meryl Streep, yeah, it, it did seem like another Academy loves Meryl nomination. I didn't see Florence Foster Jenkins, I had but zero, I had negative interest in that. But, movie. but I think it's, you know, in terms of stuff that's in the spotlight, Amy Adams getting nothing for either of those two roles, mm-hmm. uh, that was the Amy Adams spot, you know. Yeah, and yeah. if more people had seen The Edge of Seventeen, it might be the Haley Steinfeld spot. Uh, the best way you can set up this movie is the first scene. What kind of movie you're in for. Basically, it's the Steinfeld character, Nadine, running through the halls of school into her favorite teacher's class, who's played by Woody Harrelson. It's kind of between classes. He's just eating. She sits down, she sits down in front of him at a desk, right in front of his desk, and she tells him, I'm going to kill myself. Like That's how this movie starts. And she gives him this reason like I don't want to live like my time is done you know my life's crumbling and a a normal movie like this the Woody Harrelson character would be like oh my god uh okay I have to call people now this whole situation has changed I need to get you into a therapist you know but what does he say instead he goes oh see that's all very interesting um I just so happened before you came in to be crafting my own suicide note. <laughs> and, then he, and then he tells her, well, he wants to die because of, because of things like this. adult and, things yeah. like crushing debt. I'm sure. Yeah. And, he, yeah. He, he tells her one of the reasons he wants to die is because she's telling him she wants to die <laughs> basically essentially. And that's the kind of humor that is riddled throughout this movie. Uh, very dark. It's very dark, but this, this script is as sharp as a rusty bayonet, man. And it's kind of in the, the vein of a movie like Juno, I think, which is a movie that I've come to appreciate less as time has gone by because the dialogue is just kind of grating to me now. But this movie is Juno without that lingering obnoxiousness that I think Juno has. Uh, It really is so on point with how it depicts teenage life and how even the most like banal minutia is like life and death histrionics for all of these young people like you know a boy won't call me like that is the end of the fucking world yeah you know and it, it acknowledges that these people are truly works in process and they haven't found their identity yet and it just really captures that that tween to late teen kind of year it, it just in the dialogue in the performances in the situations i mean 
it recognizes that a lot of these things these kids are talking about are the very definition of first world problems, you know, but to them, those emotions are still genuine, you know, even though they have no, they have no context, they have no respect for the world at large, what's happening to them is still authentic and genuine, even if you were to look at it in, in you know, in the future, you'd say that was ridiculous, ridiculous. That, I, that I felt that way. Yeah. And it's it's so it's so on point with how it captures that. And but it's true though. It's, yeah, it's yeah. so true that yeah, mm-hmm. like the problems of, I mean, the problems of a seventeen-year-old as a senior in high school don't amount to a hill of beans in anywhere. I mean, <laughs> right. it's just like those are those are not problems. No. If you had those, you wish you had the problems you had when you were seventeen. Yeah. Now. Well, because when you had those problems when you're seventeen, those were the most dramatic events of your life yeah, at, at that at point, that and you and you treat them as melodramatic as that sounds even though from an existential viewpoint, it's patently absurd how you're reacting. Uh, the movie also stars Blake Jenner from everybody wants some mm-hmm. as, uh, as her brother and, um, Kira Sedgwick as her mom. And I got to say one of my supporting turns of the year comes from, uh, one of her Asian classmates named Hayden Zetso. He plays her friend and aspiring boyfriend, Irwin, who is just the most, awkward picture of teenage life I've ever seen in a movie that's consistently laugh out loud. Just there are scenes when he's talking to her on the phone and he's just stammering and stuttering and trying to be the cool guy, but failing miserably. And something that n- neither of us experienced. Of course, we were always the suavest, coolest guys. Of course, of course. Right? We've got three girls on tap tonight. Hey, <laughs> no, it's like, it's totally, it's it's a star making turn in my opinion. Like there, <laughs> it has to be seen to be understood, but th- this kid is such a delightful portrait of awkwardness that has a really interesting arc in and of, in and of himself, and uh, that hopefully that will lead to bigger and better roles for him. Um, <laughs> there's just this persistent awkwardness that's irresistible, and it's slightly exaggerated maybe for comedic effect, but it's still just so fun to watch. Uh, this is probably going to be the most criminally underseen and underappreciated movie from 2016. Wow. For me. I just don't think anybody saw it. It kind of came out December-ish. Didn't have a lot of buzz behind it. But it's a killer script and a killer movie. Well, good. Um, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb like with your Meryl Streep thing. I'm going to say that our number one movie is going to match again. God damn it. Why can't we just... Why, why can't you get out of my head? Get out of my goddamn head. You want to know why I think that? Because we have talked about somebody in this movie twice. Without mentioning the We've movie. not mentioned the second movie. No. No. No, because it's the best movie of the year. Do you want to say it on the count of three? I'll let you have it. All right. The number one movie for Clayton and I is obviously Arrival. <laughs> not the 96 Charlie Sheen movie? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the genius, intelligent, sophisticated science fiction film from Denny Villeneuve. Oh, my gosh. I mean, talk about... You don't. You want to talk about... You, you mentioned it with Green Room, and you talked about it with um, one of your other films. It's just the white-knuckler mm-hmm. knock you Eye back in, in your seat. Yeah, that's what... Yeah. But, I mean, I probably held my breath for the last 10 minutes of this movie i mean you are just paralyzed it's gorgeous by this film yeah gorgeously shot fantastically acted original original science fiction we got that this year yeah and it was and it was incredible it's it's introspective as a uh, the way i've described it is it's independence day meets terrence malick right Mm -hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of tone poem kind of sequences in this movie that are all about 
emotion and how you how you process things in your life and yeah. it's just a work of ravaging beauty really i mean you just you 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 leave and you just almost can't even process everything that has gone on mm. there's i mean that ending i mean the ending is what makes the whole thing mm. and there isn't much more that can be said no. about it but at the at its core it's a film about togetherness and unity it's, and it's so prophetic Again, we've been talking about it the entire I, I was, time. I was going to make that note. I had that note on my list. That yeah. It, it came out right after the election mm-hmm. at a time when America was at its most divided and fractured. And it's a movie about how we have to come together. Yeah. Not to, only as to, a nation, but as a... As, to work as a species. As a species. I mean, it, it, it takes an alien encounter. It takes an external force for us to be able to work together. Right. That's not great. I mean, like, it's, it's great in, in what it comes to and, right. and, and the fact that it may or may not happen but the fact that it takes an external event like this in this in this world to have that together it's like okay that may that may that may happen <laughs> it, it takes our perspective out of solipsism and kind of an anthropomorphic viewpoint and forces us to reckon with something that's not of us you know and what what that would do to our species i think is really eloquently captured and realistically portrayed in this movie from the earliest scenes but when they're just introducing the alien spacecraft there's there's such a matter of factness and a reality based approach to how this would really play out i love how it's introduced she's uh amy adams plays a uh professor of linguistics and her her class is very sparsely populated for some reason they're all focusing on something they're all on their phones they're all on their laptops they're not paying attention to her and phones are going off and a kid just very very uh directly but respectfully goes can you turn the television on please and immediately i'm like i'm like shivering in my chair yeah i'm just thinking about it too yeah i'm just shivering in my chair and uh and you know there's as she leaves the class that day, there's like car accidents and there's there's jets zipping through the sky. And it just all felt so plausible for how this would actually happen, which is, is such a crucial foundation for delivering on all the emotional fronts later in the film. I mean, th- that's where the meat of this movie is, is with... Did you think of Short Term 12 at all with how this movie begins and ends? No. Because this mo- this movie has a bookend. Okay. This movie has yeah. this movie has bookends. Oh, for sure. Short Term Twelve has bookends mm-hmm. that are both very emotional and kind of profound. And it's interesting the way that you you interpret those things mm-hmm. again. Okay. Yeah. So, the, so know, the way the, that yeah. I the, this movie begins with a a montage, and it's filmed in a very it's filmed in a way that is very dreamlike, dreamlike, and memorable, but but it's not something that really rocks you. It's something that you kind of you store in your memory banks, and it's just cashed out on on an epic scale later in the movie, when essentially the prologue we get the story with Amy Adams and and her daughter who mm-hmm. you know we learn it's not a spoiler it happens the first scene we learn that her daughter uh, dies of cancer, and the way that's presented is almost like a time lapse or not time lapse it's like a it's like a montage, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it is. Oh, yeah, it, and it's, it's, it's her. It's her going through the different points of being sick, and right. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's set to maybe the most enrapturing piece of string music I've ever heard, called "On the Nature of Daylight" by a composer named Max Richter. And this scene, you kind of log it, but you don't 
really know what to do with it. And we'll just say that this this is revisited later in the movie. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, it just the the meaning behind it has exploded a hundredfold. You know, as you realize all the mechanics of the plot and how everything is unfolding. And how there's some connection between how the story is being told and mm-hmm. the mental state of the protagonist, yeah. and it just leaves you with so many profound, thought-provoking, evocative qu- questions about like the nature of love and just the nature of time and how we process time, you know. And th- there's definitely some trickery going on with how we're seeing things in the movie, but it's not manipulative or exploitative. Mm-hmm. It's just so exquisitely wrought. Well, and and. I would add to that too. I mean, the 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 feeling you get watching it, and the feeling of hope that you get, and the feeling of just you know, and when that ending hits you, when because there were all different points. I feel like when you when you realize what you know what's happening, that that's what you want out of a number one movie of the year is you want that to be you want that feeling in your gut and you want that like, feeling in like your you heart. were just broken down yeah. as, as a human being and yeah. re, and rebuilt again yeah. And and that and this film does it. We haven't even really talked about the visual effects on the spaceship or with the uh, actual aliens themselves. I mean, right. that's where the story is. The spaceship design, I think, is refreshingly simple. Yeah, it almost reminded me of the vehicle from from Cosmos, the, the show. I'm yeah, oh yeah, years ago, the ship of the imagination, where it's just kind of this. Very sleek, very, very, very sleek. What, what kind of sh- what kind of shape is that? Like an oblong, yeah, or obelisk or something. Yeah, it's like, like it, but, yeah. but but I think it's the it's the vertical nature of it, and not the horizontal nature. Right. You've seen so many of these ships that are really that are, long, that are flat, yeah. but they're not tall. Right. And I think that's what makes it different. It's a very striking image. This thing landing, almost like a giant comma, almost yeah. like, <laughs> right. like right. an apostrophe <laughs> or something, like coming into the different parts of the world. And how the the physics of the of the space are played with once you actually get into the ship. Yeah. Was also an interesting twist. And there was wonderful camera work done inside there and very, very mm-hmm. subtle, but very effective right. um, visual effects. But I mean, really it just, it's the, the, the message of togetherness and the message of, mm-hmm. of hope and that theme is so prophetic at that particular, or, or was really needed at that particular mm-hmm. moment and continues to be needed. And, there's just no movie no movie like this no it won't it probably won't win best picture because it is such a heavy sci-fi i mean it's it's hard sci-fi yeah um or it's a straight sci-fi story right um but there really is no other movie like it this year Mm -hmm. and uh i'm gonna see it again i I really wanted to see it again when it was out but i'm there it's coming back to theaters and i'm definitely gonna see it again you talk about being treated like an adult right yeah in a movie and 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 really really giving being given something to chew on and ponder over there's no the only explosion in this film is committed by humans mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and it's a very small scale explosion um I, I just love how everything it makes the cosmic very very small which is why i also loved interstellar and Velnuv, he wanted i looked it up he wanted this movie to feel like quote this was happening on a bad tuesday morning like when you were a kid on the school bus on a rainy day and you dream all looking out the window at the clouds huh end quote it really does have that i feel like that's very it do, yeah it artic, do, articulates very well the feeling of this movie it does have a definite a definite gray mm. dreamlike feel to it so i can see that that's great speaking of him by the way 
is he like one of the like four best directors He's now? A-list. This movie brought him into the A-list, in my opinion. I mean, Prisoners, Sicario, and this movie, and Enemy, and he was nominated for an Oscar for Incendies. Yeah, and now he's going to be ago. making Blade Runner, Blade 2049. Runner, twenty forty nine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's. I mean, I, I am extremely confident that he can handle that that source material after seeing this movie. Totally. Yeah. Um, I actually did a little research on the language that they, the aliens use. Oh the, yeah. The heptapods. Cause it's very, they say it's not linear. It's, uh, it's almost like an ex- explosion of content and form that is, you know, you wouldn't read it left to right or right to left. It's kind of this all encompassing spectrum of mm-hmm. thought that you're supposed to just kind of interpret and process automatically. But Villeneuve and the screenwriter actually created this language and the, the language was is obviously symbol based, and they categorized it in something they called the logogram Bible, and they actually invented a hundred different workable, operable symbols for these aliens to speak in. About seventy-one of which are actually displayed in the film. So it, it does feel like something that so much thought went into, mm-hmm. you know, and it's so unique. I mean, it's almost like it's a squid, like spraying ink into something yeah. that's really beautiful it's really fascinating and and mysterious and interesting and yeah i i've seen it three times wow really i own the soundtrack on vinyl oh wow i am all in on denny villeneuve's arrival wow. i can't believe it we did it again clayton we did it again should Every we, should, should we just high five in the middle of the table sure yeah <laughs> high five <laughs> all wow. right well, well that was a very very interesting good discussion yeah. And that's usually what these podcasts bear out. Yes. I, I think would we agree. have a hard time ending them though, usually. Usually we kinda stumble over our feet trying to <laughs> trying to so. trying to get out of this mess we've created. <laughs> we've just been in it for so long and then we just have to try to find a way out and it makes it tricky. But All right, let's find a, a graceful note to end on. I'll just say that I'm Clayton Shank. You I'm, are I'm Ryan McCarran. And thank you so much for listening to our top ten films of twenty sixteen. We will see you next year. Yay.